PS warning. Listen to podcasts with extreme caution. This week, the police are letting us know that the city is very, very, very dangerous and not to go outside. But their reasoning has nothing to do with the smoke, and we're still not quite sure how seriously the city is taking this climate change business. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we are Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 227. Mac, this is the penultimate episode before our annual summer break. We will be back next week with uh, Zoning Adult to talk to us all about the nitty gritty nuts and bolts of the zoning bylaw. A grown up. I'm excited to learn more. And so you, dear listener, if you have any questions about the mechanics of this new zoning bylaw renewal and how it might function, feel free to send us an email, tweet, I don't know. Are you on Blue Sky? Threads? No. Do you have an invite for Blue Sky? I'm not on there. Uh, I, do they not know you invented the Yeg hashtag? Do they not know who you are? <laughs> Evidently not. Threads, they can't even send us a DM. I don't know if you can even at message someone on Threads. Good point. Yeah. Carrier pigeon works. Yeah. yeah throw eggs at my house. Uh, whatever works. Uh, but if you have any questions, let us know and we'll be sure to ask them. We're excited to get really into the nuts and bolts of it. Almost as excited as I am to get into the rapid fire segment. With the Screen Actors Guild strike beginning, this marks the first time in 60 years that both writers and actors have been on strike at the same time. We at Speaking Municipally offered to suspend the rapid fire segment in solidarity, but Guild leadership assured us that neither the performance nor the quality of writing of the segment warranted association with either Guild. In an announcement earlier this week, the federal government has confirmed an additional $31 million contribution to the 50th Street train grade separation project, in order to keep it on track and get it to cross the finish line. Said the transportation minister, quote, I have a one-track mind for this project, and we can't lose our train of thought or get derailed. We'll get this Pass built. Triplets were born at the Misericordia Hospital on Father's Day this year, the first set of triplets born at the hospital in decades, and the third set of triplets born at the Misericordia ever, after someone uttered a late-night third Beetlejuice. Speaking Municipally is a publication of Taproot Edmonton. Uh, If you haven't checked it out yet, I would encourage you to go over to wherever you get your podcasts and listen to Let's Find Out, our sister podcast. Uh, Just taking a a look this season at nature in Edmonton, and I've just really been enjoying the work that uh, Chris and the team over there are doing. So go check that out, letsfindoutpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. It's almost like you planned that segue there, Mac, because the first thing we're talking about is nature in Edmonton and indeed the National Urban Park Plan, uh, which has reached a new milestone in Edmonton. Mac, I looked at the report on this update and I I really struggled to find the update on it. It all seems very much the same as it always seemed. Well, I mean, we are getting to summer, right? So uh, everything's getting delayed and postponed till later. Everybody's kind of starting to check out. But uh, there was a little bit of an update, and that is that Urban Planning Committee has recommended moving forward with the next phase. So all of the work so far in this National Urban Park Initiative, which is a federal program from Parks Canada to create these these parks across Canada, uh, has been sort of a pre-feasibility stage. It's been funded by Parks Canada. It's been sort of exploratory. Two main things happened with this recommendation from Urban Planning Committee. One is they've settled on the River Valley as the location for Edmonton's potential national urban park. Shocking every Edmontonian who's following this. I mean, I think that was really in question. You know what I mean? Uh, And secondly, that they recommend moving forward into this planning phase. So this is a little bit more tailed now to figure out what what this will look like and also requires administration to put in some money. I don't think they knew how much yet, and they 
sort of stressed to council that they could walk away if the terms were unfavorable. But the committee unanimously agreed that we should be moving forward on this initiative. Of course, the National Urban Park Strategy is not the same as Banff National Park or Jasper National Park. It's not about needing an explore pass to get into a park. It is generally just the Parks Canada acknowledging that Banff and Jasper, there's no train to. You have to drive to those national parks. And yet we know that people are happier, healthier when they have green space, local and in a walkable distance from their homes. So the National Urban Park Strategy is all about bringing that to life and making sure that there are green spaces across the country and helping with some funding and regulation. Of course, in Edmonton, you know, with the largest urban forest in North America, we're not really want for this assistance, but the benefit of additional funding from Parks Canada, I can't think of anyone who would say that's a bad thing. That said, um, one of the councillors this week did say, now nah, we should probably skip this. Yeah, Councillor Tim Carmel hasn't been the biggest fan of this project. And I find myself understanding and agreeing with his his uh, position on this. He basically talked about how we already have regulation that would prevent, you know, a free-for-all of development or anything like that in the River Valley. Indeed, the very first zone in our zoning bylaw ever was to protect the River Valley system and our ravine system. So he's kind of questioning why we need the federal government involved in sort of the management of this park. I don't think actually that his colleagues are looking forward to having the feds take over the management so much as maybe, as you say, we can tap into a little bit of federal funding. And the other thing that they keep talking about that I'm a bit skeptical of is maybe we get some sort of a tourism or economic benefit from this as well. A more practical benefit could be, you know, educational programming and awareness and things like that that might come along with this national initiative. I'm not usually one to want to agree with Tim Carmel, but given that so far this has all been on Parks Canada's dime, like you said, the low level of investment that seems to be required here in terms of our time and our knowledge, it seems worth it to just pursue this opportunity, at least so far. We can kibosh it down the line um, if it ends up being us. Information about national urban parks is always one of those things that's just like perpetually on the back burner. We keep hearing about it and hearing about it and you know, it doesn't seem to progress. So it's nice to see at least some sort of checkpoint going forward. Of course, the other thing we constantly hear about is police and police funding and danger. We heard uh, last week that crime severity in the core areas had declined uh, quite substantially, and the police were very excited by that. And of course, this week, the police have said, don't go outside. It's a madhouse out there. You're going to die. I'm paraphrasing approximately. I mean, that's pretty close to what they said, actually. Homicide detective Jared Bueller offered some advice to Edmontonians, and he said they should avoid, quote, any interaction with anyone that gives you any sense of uncertainty because you can literally end up with a knife in your chest, end quote. And this is, of course, following what the police say has been a pretty dangerous past few days. But as you point out, they already talked about the decline in crime severity, not just in June, but over the winter from November to February. They previously said they expected some fluctuations in the summer. That's a normal thing that they anticipate. And yet here we are in the summer experiencing a minor fluctuation in the last week or so. And you have members of the Edmonton Police Service out there making statements like this, you know, talking about how extremely unsafe our transit system is. As if Edmontonians haven't already heard that. And by the way, 
that doesn't do anything for the people that have no option but to use our transit system, right? And and I just love the the news that this comes out. You know, all of these statements from the police at the same time as we see, I think someone ramming a people are building with their vehicle, but there's no warning about that. A man walks down White Avenue with a crossbow, shoots someone, and the police can't do anything about that. Like, it's really shocking to me how they, you know, choose to use the summer slowdown in the media cycle to put out such fear-mongering, factually questionable statements. The part that always boggles my mind is they've got a very high-paid PR department at the uh, Edmonton Police Service. A lot of our tax dollars fund their press relations. This sort of whiplash of releases where everything's super safe, everything's super unsafe, week to week, it really stresses the credibility of the Edmonton Police Service. I wonder what the strategy here, uh, of course, the strategy is to increase their funding. This is always the police strategy. But from a media relations standpoint, it doesn't quite have a consistent messaging. It seems odd to me that they would contradict themselves seemingly on a whim. I think part of the issue here is that there's always a different person who's talking to the media, right? I've not seen this homicide detective quoted in the news very much recently is different than the spokespeople that are often mentioned in news stories or the chief or, you know, one of the deputy chiefs or something like that, who's a little more of a common, you know, character in the news. Darren Durko, for example, deputy chief of their community policing bureau, has been in the news. And I expect to see comments from him. And he talks, of course, about resources being strained and cites this increase in, in random attacks. So clearly, as you say, the police have an agenda to try and, if not increase, at least preserve their funding, but really to increase their funding. And and they go out and they make these kinds of statements in, in support of that. And when they come out and say, you know, that crime severity has gone down or that they've been successful at confiscating hundreds of weapons. You know, they're not doing that to tell Edmontonians that they should feel safe. They're doing that to try to justify the money they're getting. Look at us doing such a great job over here, but not too good of a job because things are still bad and we still need more money. And I want to talk a little bit about that money piece because there has to be an end game, right? Like if you ask the Edmonton Police Service, how much is enough? I suppose the question is, well, how much is your budget? But there has to be an upper threshold. And I think there has to be an understanding that like Edmontonians wouldn't want to stomach 70 or 80 percent of our budget going to policing. But if you look at the police right now saying their resources are being strained, this is with the addition of Alberta sheriffs augmenting their police service. This is with the addition of additional resourcing and partnerships in the uh, Healthy Streets Operations Center. And investment of uh, additional dollars from the city into more peace officers. They just graduated another 12 this week, for example. Absolutely. So when you consider all of that, for them to say, okay, with all this bonus stuff, we are still stretched thin and the city's not safe to walk. Well, as an Edmontonian hearing that, I don't think they need a 5% increase. I don't think they need a 7% increase. I think they need a 30% increase, a 50% increase. Like if things are this dire, the solution has to be that big. I I worry about that messaging because are the police in a position to ask for another $250 million? I don't think that's palatable to anyone involved. If they're presenting this story that things are so dire and then come budget time, they say, we need $8 million more dollars and they get it. Well, that too is going to stress their credibility by quite a lot because 
the story they're presenting is not one that $8 million can solve. No, and then you know as well as I do that it's really not the police that are going to solve that problem anyway. It's sort of the root causes that we need to address in other ways. But there is a game being played here, and it's important to be mindful of that. We, of course, have a funding formula for the police just for this year. And the further three years of this cap of this budget cycle were postponed until this year for city council to discuss what does a funding formula for the police look like. That has been delayed three times now. It was supposed to come back in the first quarter. It got punted to June 13th, then July 4th, now August 22nd, right after council comes back from its summer break. Uh, you know, if I was a betting man, I would probably put money on it being postponed again slightly. Uh, but the game here is, you know, they craft and build up this narrative over the months leading up into this very important discussion so that, you know, it's not budget time, it's funding formula time. When council comes to talk about that, all they will have seen throughout the summer is all of the comments that you described. Really, we really shouldn't read the comments. But the story about the police warning you to be extra cautious this week, on Twitter at least, all the responses are, oh my God, things are falling apart under Mayor Sohi. The police don't have any accountability here. It's all about our terrible politicians. And so that's what's you know, going to contribute to making that really difficult, important decision for council so much harder than it needs to be. And of course, that one-year funding formula that was put in place had pretty material consequences that we found out this year because when city council agreed to that just one-year interim funding formula, they also agreed to accept responsibility for salary settlements. Salary settlements were not included in that funding formula. So that means that, you know, the police have been in bargaining since around 2020. Any contract that was decided on would be solely the responsibility of the city. It wouldn't come from EPS budgets if there was a decision to issue raises and backdate them. And indeed, an arbitrator had come down with a decision that uh, has been released this week. The crux of it is the EPS is getting around 2.5% per year raises, which equates to over this three-year period of 2020 to 2023, around $20 million in just lump sum checks to Edmonton Police Service members. I saw a reporting on Progress Alberta that will equal roughly $10,000 for an average Edmonton Police Service officer as sort of just a check to their account for these past three years of back pay. The city of Edmonton confirmed that, as you say, this is not meant to be covered by the funding formula. This is managed corporately. These salary settlements are managed corporately. And this is one of the big questions that came up when they were debating that funding formula back in October. What is the status of these settlements? How will that be handled? The Edmonton Police Service estimates for what this breakdown to is 4.1 million for 2021, 8.4 million for 2022, and 7.2 million for 2023. The thing that caught me off guard about all of this is one, this is sort of like when council agreed to the funding formula, just pulling the pin out of a grenade and sliding it under the desk and hoping it doesn't go off because we had a very acrimonious budget where many councillors were nickel and diming. They were cutting projects off the board that many of them campaigned on or really supported simply because this was the fiscal situation that we were in. And yet we knew that down the line, with no warning, we could get salary settlements that'll come through and we'll have to cut a check to Edmonton Police no impact on the Edmonton Police Service budget whatsoever, fully absorbed by the tax base. Council doesn't want to raise taxes at the fall supplementary budget adjustment. What's going to get cut in order to manage this lump sum payment to the police? I did some back of the napkin math. The high level line was a tentpole campaign, not promise, but advocate. Come budget time, there was a proposal with the high level 
bridge renewal to build the high-level line. It was about $100 million uh, was the extra cost to build high-level line. So I did some back-of-the-napkin math that getting debt financing for around a 15-year, they get a preferential rate, and it's in the ballpark of, you know, 4 to 5%. If you took the salary settlement, so the increase in police salaries that the city is now on track for, plug that into a little debt calculator, do 15-year amortization, 5% APR. Mac, what we're paying for the Edmonton police, this grenade that went off, could have funded the high-level line, basically in full. This was something that was acrimoniously cut. Progressive councillors who all campaigned on freezing or cutting police funding are now chopping off this tentpole project when they could have paid it with the money that they're now giving to police in raises. The gross irony of all of that really struck me as, where is the accountability for all of this? Why is it decided by just an arbitrator somewhere says, okay, please get this money. And there's no checks and balances. There's no forewarning. There's no budget process. It's just, okay, the police get this money. No other department in the city would be like this. Well, in a way, council reaped what they sow, right? In passing that funding formula without any other change to how salary settlements are handled. I like your choice of project, obviously, with the high level (laughs) line, but insert any other important city building project. And just for the listener to be clear, Troy's not saying that paying for salary settlements and paying for the high level line come out of the same budget, one's capital, one's operating. But anytime we take on debt to pay for capital, there's an impact on the operating budget. And that's what you're talking about. And I think that's a really good way to look at it because there's lots of things we could build in this city or indeed lots of other programs and services we might choose to fund that we may not be able to, not only because of the salary settlement grenade, as you've talked about, but also the next three years, like this funding formula for the next three years. What does that look like? How do salary settlements fit into that? And what kinds of increases are we looking at over that time period? We have an incredibly massive police budget now, something like 430 plus million dollars just for police in the city out of a $3.8 billion budget or whatever it is. Like it is a significant amount of money that we spend on police. And back to where we started on this, it's really frustrating to have that kind of investment, that level of investment, and then to just see story after story, news release after news release, from the Edmonton police talking about how unsafe it is. And indeed, if we're talking about safety as a metrics, uh, as looking at the numbers for, for example, people dying, it's not stabbings on the LRT that's killing the most Edmontonians. It's the drug poisoning crisis. It's opioids. We heard this week that, once again, opioids are an ongoing emergency level crisis that is only appearing to escalate without any sort of solution in sight. That's right. Uh, Alberta Emergency Services set a record recently responding to 339 opioid-related incidents in a single week, 170 of which... Hold on. In a month? In a week. 339 in a single week. Mac, I'm not very good at math, but if I divide 339 by 7, that's 50 every day. That's two per hour. That's right. And... A significant number of those, 170, were in Edmonton alone. When people say that this is a crisis, they're not underselling it. Edmonton had the most of any municipality across the province. And of course, this rise in drug poisonings is awful for uh, the folks that are experiencing these things and leads to an unsustainable and, and heartbreaking number of deaths. But it also just puts a strain on the rest of the system. 
it's one of the reasons why we've seen wait times for EMS creep upward. And, and it takes a really long time now sometimes if you're in an emergency situation to get a response. This drug poisoning epidemic is getting worse. It doesn't seem to be getting better. Uh, the other development this week was the Confederacy of Treaty Six First Nations has declared a state of emergency in response to this and is asking for support and funding from all three levels of government to help address it. Yeah, of course, we know that opioid and drug poisoning tends to affect our indigenous communities at a much higher rate. The Confederacy of Treaty Six First Nations said that compared to the general population, the mortality rate of opioid poisoning is seven times higher for their members. Mayor Amarjeet Sohi, as he's wont to do, he very emotionally said, you know, we grieve with you for every community member lost, but said once again that these deaths are preventable and both the federal and provincial governments have an obligation to work together to save lives. To their credit, the feds tend to be at the table, maybe not doing everything they could be doing, but they're at the table um, and contributing. The province we've covered before is almost always completely absent or doing the bare minimum. And indeed, this week, uh, Daniel Smith's UCP took to Twitter to criticize the federal government for not doing enough to handle the opioid pricing, which if it wasn't so serious, I would say, was rich. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Of course, that wasn't the only sort of politician doublespeak we saw this week. I'm looking outside, Mac. Uh, it's smoky again. I think most of this week, we haven't really seen the blue skies. It's been this hazy level of smog. I, of course, have solar panels on my roof now, so I am acutely aware of just how much smoke yeah. is in the air. Yeah. Uh, my monitoring tells me. And all of this was juxtaposed with a whole slew of roadway construction announcements. Yeah, the big one, of course, this week we mentioned in the rapid fire, which is another $31 million in federal funding for that 50th Street uh, overpass project. And so this is a project that began several years ago. The feds previously contributed a committed almost $40 million in 2018. And the price of this project as it's gone on has continued to go up. This is what happens. The longer it takes to build these things, inflation and other you know, factors. So it went from 145 million to now 180 million. So thankfully, even though city council just approved that increased amount last summer with the hope that the feds would come to the table, they have, and we're getting some money to help pay for that. But I was just struck by, you know, the announcement. It was one of these traditional types of things. You've got all the politicians in reflective vests and construction hard hats, and they're on site. They're, you know, doing the, the photo op and everything. And the mayor talks about it. He says, we're grateful that the feds are helping us with this important infrastructure. He talks about his own experience running into the train there. You never know how long you're going to have to wait. Not a single mention of climate change. Not a single mention of the contribution of single occupancy vehicles to all of the smoke that we're experiencing right now, the smog and the other you know, impacts of, of climate change. And I know some people listening are right away going to say, but Mac, if they don't have to wait as long for the train, isn't that better? They're going to emit less emissions. And to that, I say, that's really a terrible argument, like to continue to allow our city to sprawl, to continue to prioritize vehicles over more sustainable modes of transportation. And for what? To save people five minutes on their commutes? Now, I'm going to hesitate because I have been on the brunt of internet hate before, and I'm not going to come out against the 50th Street grade separation, Mac. It's uh, This is a passionate issue. I recall former Mayor Don Iveson 
released a swear word in his saying uh, <laughs> in his video saying we're finally going to get that train fixed. Um, and, you know, there's there's plenty of projects. Critical rail infrastructure is also important for reducing climate impacts. Of course, the train could have always run there. The grade separation piece is less egregious than the associated road widening of 50th Street, which always seems to slip in under the radar. We're separating the grade from the train and also embiggening the road. But I think the worst juxtaposition was the provincial government saying that we're on track and the expansion of the Anthony Hende remains to be completed on target this fall. This is, of course, moving the two-lane Anthony Hende around the uh, southwest section to a three-lane highway in both directions, uh, which, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know much about traffic engineering, will allow more cars to be on that road. Oh, yeah, but it'll make it so that everyone can go so much faster and won't run into delays and all, yeah, no, induced demand. If only we had one more lane is just crazy, right? And again, no mention of, of any climate impacts. And it's not just me as a person who thinks climate change is a serious issue that is questioning why is there no um, mention of emissions and things in these projects. The city of Edmonton has a carbon accounting framework. We are supposed to get updates on every single one of our projects about the impact it's going to have on our climate budget, on the emergency that we've declared, the crisis that we've declared. And it just seems like all of that has fallen away. We've talked at length about the carbon budget. We were both quite unimpressed when it was released, but it reminds me of the conversation we had with Irfan last week. It's just like the GBA plus analysis. The carbon accounting sort of seems like what we use to get the check mark, get the stamp saying we're doing our good work so we can't be criticized, but yet still continuing with the projects unchanged as we were going to do them before. And to be fair, both of these projects did start long before we had a carbon accounting framework, but not much long before we knew there was a climate crisis. And indeed, um, I do recall an inconvenient truth was released basically before I was born. We have known about climate change for a little while. Yeah, it's not. It shouldn't be a surprise. One thing that did come as a surprise this week, uh, we haven't heard many updates about the Boyle Street Health Hub that was going to be constructed in Ritchie. This is the potential safe consumption site as well as, you know, a thing that helps clients with sourcing other services, resume building, you know, food and drink. It's a general health hub of wraparound services to help the homeless community that exists in the area. And you and I had said, you know, if this project is going to fail, it's going to be, you know, the province has kiboshed a safe consumption site here or, you know, there's or there's some zoning issue with a neighbor saying you can't have health services in this area or, or something to that effect. Yeah. Well, we heard this week that the project is a little bit on hold. The SDAB has declined to authorize the development, but it's not for the reason that either of us predicted. Well, Troy, I think you've read this already. What is the reason? Well, I haven't read the full SDAB decision that hasn't been quite released yet, but Boyle Street uh, issued a release saying that the SDAB did in fact acknowledge the Wolf Den, which is what they're calling this, as mm -hmm. a health hub, which includes an overdose prevention site, as a properly zoned health service. So as far as the SDAB decision is concerned, we're A-OK -okay to have a safe consumption site. Properly zoned doesn't sound like it should be on hold. Uh, yeah, uh, they said that there is a variance caused by a lack of universal 
accessibility that was overlooked in our initial application. And this led to the SDAB revoking the permit. Sounds like a relatively simple fix, I think. It, it does. And in fact, um, Boyle Street is, you know, they're not saying that this is a good thing. You know, their right. permit has been revoked, but they're saying, yeah, no, we can absolutely correct this and resubmit. And then we're good to go. We're so excited that they've recognized our zoning as a health hub as being appropriate. I do have the question, you know, obviously they can't say this in their release, but why if this was a minor accessibility issue that Boyle Street clearly intends to correct, why wasn't approval granted, you know, with a condition? You can say, mm -hmm. yeah, as long as you conditionally correct this deficiency, you're good to go. It does feel to me that this was, and of course we'll see when the actual full decision comes out, it feels almost like a punitive decision. Like it's, you know, you've done the full inspection of the house, you can't find anything wrong with it, uh, but that trim isn't painted, so no occupancy. Like, that's kind of what I'm feeling this. Of course, universal accessibility is important, right. but easily corrected, and Boyle Street has indicated they absolutely do intend to correct it. Yeah, so it's just another delay in the process, which means it'll come back again and we'll use up some more time for everybody involved before this inevitably moves forward. I agree. Seems like they could have streamlined the process here a little bit. Of course, this whole thing gives me sort of like whiplash and deja vu because this isn't the only time that Boyle Street is in front of the SDAB getting rejected and then resubmitting afterwards. This was happening just north of the river over in Chinatown with the other services hub that uh, Boyle Street was intending to offer. Yeah, I mean, this is the other new location for Boyle Street Community Services, right? They announced previously that they're going to move their whole operation. So a little more than just the hub, although there's that aspect to it as well. But with both of these projects... It just feels like, you know, a process that should have been more seamless, should have happened a little more quickly, got mired in all kinds of, you know, paperwork and checks and balances, which is on the one hand good. And on the other hand, isn't this the red tape people are always talking about? How does the city get these things to move forward more quickly? And of course, indeed, this is the entire point. We talked with Catherine Warren at Edmonton Unlimited. The city wants to reduce red tape for entrepreneurs in the city and accelerate ideas and reduce barriers and we heard this week that uh, Capital City Pilots has unveiled its uh, first wave of what they call challenges. Yeah, this is a program that was announced quite a while ago by Edmonton Unlimited and the city of Edmonton. And it's meant to be a way for entrepreneurs, for startups to work with the city almost as their first customer. So the city is ideally going to get a problem that they have solved uh, one of these successful startups is going to be able to build something and work with a real big customer like the municipality uh, to have a solution that they can then take and market and sell and improve in other ways. Um, and Edmontonians should benefit by, you know, this collaboration between the two and the sort of positive benefits that are meant to accrue from that. So uh, it took a while to get to these first three challenges, but they have now announced them. The first is data-driven downtown, which is all about visualizing population density in the core. The second is about environmental records for contaminated sites. So organizing this land use information, so former dry cleaners and things like that, that might be able to be cleaned up and redeveloped. And then the third is about vibrancy in the quarters, which feels like a tall order given how well <laughs> the quarters project has been going. But it's about imagining ways to, to use surface level parking lots and other infrastructure there to enhance well-being and foster economic growth in that part of the city. Are these really critical problems facing the city of Edmonton? I'm not so sure about that. I mean, 
I guess visualizing what's happening downtown is a good thing. And we probably already have data records around contaminated sites, but reimagining them, I guess, is a useful thing. Maybe uh, what happened here is they picked three projects to start with, three challenges to start with that they felt could be not easy wins, but you know more easily uh, achieved, and they could look for some success with startups to get the program going. And if that's the case, then I'm on board because this is not the first time the city has tried to do one of these programs before. We had sort of like a startup city labs thing that Startup Edmonton announced prior to that. Before Startup Edmonton, there was this thing called LTEL, which is like local technology, something or other that the city was going to have the same idea. They would benefit from local entrepreneurs, local techies building things to solve their problems. None of those programs have ever really worked out. <laughs> so I'm not super optimistic about this program either. Granted, the, co- the context is very different now. So maybe, maybe it'll be better. One thing this program has that none of those do is the word pilot, its name. Ugh. An Edmonton homegrown success story is just waiting to happen here. That's I totally missed that, but you're absolutely right. This is going to succeed for sure. <laughs> uh, I do think there's opportunity here, and I do think like this is a good thing for the city in Edmonton Unlimited to be trying. I'm just cautious about uh, about how well this is going to go, and I really do hope for the entrepreneurs that do get selected that it works out in their favor. The worst thing that could happen here is not only do we not get a city problem solved, but that we have entrepreneurs who waste a bunch of time or or are unable to you know build the thing they want to build uh, because of whatever it is, bread tape and all that sort of thing. Well, of course, this is one of the tech stories that is one of the deluge of things that is covered in The Pulse. We tell you that um, it gives you coverage of business, food, the arts, and of course, what you just heard about, tech. And that's into your email inbox every morning, 6 a.m. All you got to do is go to taprootedmonton.ca and subscribe. It's that easy. It's free. It's simple. And there's really no reason after hearing this ad so many times that you shouldn't be subscribed to it. That's that's negligence on your part, uh, dear listener. Uh, so go ahead and just head on over to taprootedmonton.ca and subscribe to The Pulse. Well, and that's all for this week. Like we said, we will be back next week to talk a little bit more about the zoning bylaw renewal. And then, dear listener, we will be gone for the summer break. Uh, We will be jaunting off, gallivanting, exploring the world. I'll be going to Taylor Swift, so neener, neener, neener. (laughs) But we will, of course, rejoin you, as we do every year, in late August and uh, give you all the updates that you're so desperately eager to hear about from Edmonton City Hall. Until then, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we are Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.